cool, man. Not every intro needs to be epic. You know what I'm saying? You're damn right. No, special should feel special. It should feel special. And so with that, crafties, we're going to start the most mediocre intro to a show ever. Hello. The cold open? Are we already doing it? We just cold open them. Just no pomp and circumstance. The opposite. (laughs) Look... You all know who he is. He's Kovac Go Blue. A lot of you know who I am, Arjuna. Welcome to the Arena Craft Podcast. Just your average podcast dedicated to Magic the Gathering Arena among a sea of imitators. However, we are the original. And uh, yeah, dude, I'm stoked to be here on this normal day when nothing special is happening because we're going to talk about rotation. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I get to broadcast from a normal setup dude. in my own home. Yeah. Epic. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy about that. Yep. yep. So, in brief, how was the return to the throne, Covert Go Blue? Amazing. I mean, I say amazing. What was amazing was when you hit go live or you hit record and things are working and it just feels like getting back to normal, like coming home from a really awkward trip. If you've ever been on a vacation that felt more exhausting than being at home, you know what I'm talking about. It was like that. And then when you power up and you go live or you hit record and things are working, there are a few better feelings in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is where I belong, doing what I love. The journey to get there is full of just awkward. Why the hell? I just unplugged this and plugged it back in. Nothing is different. So why is it not working now? There is so much of that that goes into streaming and YouTubing and podcasting that the people, you know, you, you don't have to worry about it. You at home. You don't have to worry about this. You can just enjoy the content and you can imagine the trials and tribulations behind the scenes. And if you have feelings about it, you can feel better by uh, going to our Patreon and uh, dropping a a few bucks. But yeah, it's good to put all that behind me and do what I love to do. So thanks for asking. Well, you're back. You're looking bluer than ever, CGB. So love it. Love it, man. And, uh, you know, just wanted to give you a shout out for the truly epic pulling through that you did last week. I think none of the crafties will ever quite understand just how much went into that. Sometimes looking drop dead sexy takes a lot more work than you think it does. <laughs> if you knew the amount of time I spend in hair and makeup. <laughs> I mean, the budget. The budget. So stop by the Patreon crafties. Yeah, thank you. All right. <laughs> so um, today uh, we are going to get into rotation, but I wanted to address, I think there were a number of decks that we didn't talk about last week in our standard 2022 roundup. And I thought we should just give them a shake because I think that we omitted a couple of decks, which, you know, seem to be pretty good and people cared about them stuff. They certainly cared about them enough to ask about them. So where did people let you know about that? Uh, I saw them in the YouTube comments. I saw them on Twitter. I saw them in the Discord. Yeah. So if you're if you're out there listening or watching and you have an opinions about decks we should have covered or didn't mention in the tier list, a lot of ways to get at Arjuna and myself, although more Arjuna than me. I, I've like built up a, an ignoring comments tolerance, but Arjuna still gets in there. You know, yep. he's looking, he's looking for that interaction. Yep. Yep. I'm definitely the good cop crafties. So standard 2022 last week, we gave our power rankings as it were. I think that we hit all of the decks, which either of us thought were in serious contention. However, there were a couple which people have played and enjoyed, which I think it would be fun to discuss. So we're going to do that before we get into our rotation talk here. And the first deck that I wanted to raise is Ozov Angels. 
Ooh, okay. Good one. Pretty Good potent one. deck, right? I think we've all lost to it. Yes. If you haven't lost to Orzov Angels yet, that would surprise me. I've lost to it with a number of decks. When considering it for the tiers, mm. one thing that I look at is how will this deck do if people really care about stopping it? And second, like how much kind of agency or flexibility is in the deck? And I have no doubt that Orzov Angels can get a lot of people to Mythic because when it draws, it's just kind of this collection of a little bit of synergy and a ton of power, right? Mm -hmm. And if it just curves on you and drops its best cards in the right spots, it's very, very hard to deal with for a number of matchups. But I don't feel like there's flexibility there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like you have a lot of agency. Either your good hand hits five lands and casts three to four powerful cards and your opponent has moments of weakness to them, or you don't. And maybe it's kind of a bias I have against like kind of tribal play out your stuff strategies. I'm definitely not usually the guy for that. And maybe there's a way to find flexibility in it. But for the most part, I don't see it as a tier one contender. And I think early in the format when nobody was ready for it and it was easy to underestimate, it might have been a tier two deck. Now I think it's a little more tier three now that the power things in the format have been figured out, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you on this. One of the things that I look for in decks in Standard 2022 is to see how many of the powerful cards from quote-unquote regular Standard they're rocking, you know? And I think that the Angels deck is like, it's kind of like a catch-all. It's like a catching bowl for like a number of the trickle-downs from Standard that never really made it into the normal Standard. And I'm not dissing on these cards. They're all sweet cards like Fierge's Retribution and the, you know, the Valkyrie's Enchantment stuff stuff like that, which I'm really glad that they're seeing play. But these are cards that just can't really hack it alongside some of the stronger cards in the format. I compare it to cards like a Seeker's Chariot, for example, which have seen, you know, fringe to moderate play in regular standard, but really shine in this format. But I think that this deck is just full of cards, which they're just not quite getting there. Now, it's pretty cool to see how you go to a format like Historic and all of a sudden, you know, some of your cheaper angels are really shining in that format, but they've got a lot of backup. So yeah, I think that this deck for me is kind of like it's a collection of what's the sports terminology that they're like it's a collection of benches it's like the b team right the b team (laughs) i mean i mean that's maybe that's tier b by default yeah the the (laughs) The bench warmers the uh, irregulars the practice squad the but i mean somewhere out there the fans of pro wrestling remember daniel bryant being called a a b plus player and they're going to rally behind the angels now and start the uh hallelujah movement but here's the thing we we sound like we're trashing it let's go here is it the best standard angel deck ever think of an angel tribal deck in standard has it really happened they keep trying to make great angels but has angel tribal really happened i feel like this is as close as it's ever been yeah yeah so that that's a good thing for the angel fans like they're that's certainly pushing it and now that i think about it innistrad has had some pretty dope angels right yes Sigarda is on the art for Innistrad, so Sigarda's mm-hmm. coming back at least. Maybe she'll get bitten by a werewolf. Werewolf angel creature? That would be dope. Or, you know, perhaps Eldrazi angel creature, although we have already seen that before. Mm-hmm. Maybe Phyrexian angel. Who knows? I want no Eldrazis. So there are a lot of people out there going, what happened to the Eldrazi? Because they were on Innistrad last time, if we're getting into lore. And I'm just like, I don't want the Eldrazi back. We had like a year of Eldrazi. I lived through it. I'm over the Eldrazi forever. I just want good old classic horror playing Innistrad. 
Yeah, you survived mm-hmm. the Eldrazi winter. You know, I'm with you, CGB. If this deck gets a few more good angels and our angel build arounds, it could be very, very sweet. But I agree, it suffers from... So here's another thing you have to think about, right? Think about a deck like Rogues. Sure, it's built around a core of Rogues, but really there are just many, many, many cards in that deck that have nothing to do with Rogues that just happen to be very good, and that's why the deck ended up being really good. And I think if an Angel's deck ends up being good, it's going to be the same thing. And I think that currently it gets to play cards like Vanishing Verse, which is very good. Plenty of good cards in the colors, like Elite Spellbinder, for example, that fit very well into the game plan. But I think that, you know, if we do end up seeing a really good Angel's deck in the format, it's probably going to be a, a strong core of like 12 or so angels and then just a lot of other really fantastic cards around them 100 percent agree cool all right let's go on to another deck which is always in danger of getting better cards in it which is bant party so <laughs> this is this is a deck we probably haven't even mentioned this on the show yet you played it yeah yeah once upon a time you had played it a bit and you talked about it at the beginning of the show yeah. Yeah. Okay. This deck is cool. Uh, I've taken it for a spin. It can definitely do powerful things. You have these sequences where you go something like Jaspira Sentinel into Luminarch Aspirin into Linvala into Squad Commander. And yeah, you feel like an absolute god. Often crush your opponents when you do stuff like that. Then you have the games where you just draw like two Jaspira's Sentinels, three Masked Vandals, you know, maybe like too late in the game it just like it can get so awkward so quickly and another thing that i don't like about the deck is just that the mana is terrible i mean oof (laughs) i mean with base camp being just i mean we've dragged base camp through the mud before and uh, we, we don't need to go there again but yeah this card the party deck doesn't run base camp it runs temple of the dragon queen because it has more dragons <laughs> and just the chance because of shapeshifters <laughs> it has no dragons actually it's just because of the changelings yeah and it the chance of being able to play it untapped makes it better than base camp it's embarrassingly bad for that card yeah that's cool tech, by the way. I was really happy to see that particular include with the land. Uh, it is pretty sweet. Sometimes it doesn't go the way you want it to, but a surprising amount of the time mm-hmm. it does kind of work out. So pretty cool tech for the deck. But yeah, definitely just, you know, just highlighting the fact that we just need some more good lands to kind of fill in the color pie. And that's definitely one of the things most holding this archetype back because it's essentially a three color aggro deck. I mean, that's hard to make work in the best of formats, you know? So I like the party deck. Yeah. And if I were to tier it, it's kind of weird because I feel like everybody else has great draws with the party deck and wins. And I feel like when I play it, I go second and I play my Sentinel on one, but then I have a tap land on two and no follow up. And then they kill my Sentinel and turn three, I'm playing to an empty board and I'm behind and my opponent has, you know, it, that's how it feels because the bias of our minds, you know, it depends which way you want to shift it. But I think the longer you play magic, the more you feel those fail states. Whereas maybe the less time you play Magic, the more you feel those god draws. You know what I mean? So I've played Magic so long, and I'm not bragging. This is kind of an indictment. So long, I only see fail states. So anytime I see the party deck that requires creatures on the board to be effective, I see a lot of fail state. And I can't tier list it unless it really, really shines. I will say this. Without Extinction Event and with Shadow's Verdict not being popular, Linvala is a card that kind of makes it work like that card is a real mm-hmm. pain because doomscar mm-hmm. and blood on the snow are good in this format so against those decks especially where you can also play concerted defense the party deck is very favored 
I felt like every time I played it, if I went second and got behind on the board even a little, I didn't know how I was going to get it back. It felt so bad. Yeah. Especially if you end up like on the draw against a really strong mono green opening or something where all that creatures are just five fives and you're looking at your board of docks and it just goes awry really quickly, you know? You will hit mythic with it. Like if you play it yeah. a lot and are good, you know, at your sequencing, which is really all it asks of you is trying to get your mm-hmm. sequencing right and think about what draws you have to get you into party and how to set up for it. It will get you to mythic. It will win a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Tier 2.53. Yeah, I'm with you. Somewhere between two and three. Yeah, a final note, I do want to give a shout out to Squad Commander for just being like actually a surprisingly really pretty good magic card. And uh, this deck really highlights that. So and man, when like when they slam it on the yeah, especially when they go like turn three Linvala into turn four Squad Commander and they, they assemble Tron, it's just nasty. I like that. Assemble Creature Tron. That's what the yep. party deck does. Yep. Exactly. Okay, so those were two big ones that featured. I also think people wanted us to spend a little bit more time just talking about, like, we we kind of mentioned, we glossed over Rakdos a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think people wanted us to just talk a little bit more in depth about those decks. Tough to do. There's so many builds. Okay, why don't you go first, because I feel like you had something there. Well, I was actually going to pivot a little bit into, I think that we gave only a passing glance to the Mardu version of the deck before and i think you know this deck is emerging like it could be a real player especially post rotation it's looking like one of those decks that could perform really well in best of three Mm -hmm. so i just wanted to kind of discuss that a little bit and give some of our thoughts on how that could end up playing out okay yeah the deck is mostly bangers it's weird it's one mana garbage like and it's not garbage it's just like a deck with like 12 one ones or something like that usually makes you think okay i mean that's all at the bottom and then like the middle to the top of the curve is just nothing but bangers and uh, i do think that this is a deck that if we had a pro scene and pros were playing this format, they would be tuning and tweaking it because the win rates I've put up with the deck when I played it have been very, very good. And mm-hmm. uh, I, but I think it would be great after sideboarding because its colors are yep. pretty stable and there's a lot of options. Like Orcus can come in if you want board wipes and things like that. Discard effects can come in if they're trying to disrupt your synergy. And I don't know. Maybe we are just severely underrating it because I don't know about you, Mardu Sacrifice. Not my jam. I can't play like 500 games of it. I'm I'm usually over it after like 10 games. But mm-hmm. the success of like streamers like Crokies was really into sacrifice early on with Mayhem Devil and Cat Oven. Ash Lizzle still plays it all the time to like these archetypes have a huge fan base and they mm-hmm. have proven that putting in the work with these can unlock like you can master these synergies more than most, which I mean, I wish I loved it more because that kind of thing is fun and magic. So this might be one of those decks that just gets better and better with mastery. And maybe we are just underrating it because we haven't put in the reps. I agree with everything you said. A few points I want to note. I think that people have been messing around with the steel and sack lists. And I think by and large, those lists are mostly memes. Oh, I I did a video on it. It might be my fault. But yeah, mostly meme. (laughs) Trying to pretend like Claim the Firstborn still exists. I was just going to say, I mean, speaking of rotation, we just don't have a claim the firstborn anymore, and it's really highlighting how good that card was and how the rest of these cards are basically just limited cards. So yeah, unless they give us another like that power level of card, I don't think that that plan is going to be particularly good. 
and and we we don't even have stuff like uh, the Acroan War, right? Which is like another kind of funky backdoor way that you can get into a steel and sack plan. That card, that was a slow burn, but what a card! You know, that, <laughs> exactly. That's one of those underrated. Yeah. I remember when I reviewed that card, I was like, since we are talking rotation today, why not? When I reviewed that card, I was like, I can't tell if this is good or not. I have no idea. I read it like four times and I, I'm still like, this might be great and it might never see play. I, I really couldn't tell. And time kind of bore out that as the format went on and on, it got better and better. Yeah, sweet card. We don't have it here. So yeah, steel and sack is probably just not going to work. And I've said this before, Crafty's on the show, but I'll say it again. I really, in my opinion... I don't think that the bulk of the work in this archetype is going to get done by the Immerstone Predator. Although CGV is looking like maybe he has a thought I mean, on that. that. That card like carried my video on the Steel and Sack deck, really? even when I drew no steel effects. Like, okay, that card against green and white is a beating. It's a it's an unbreakable wall. Now, against other decks, it's much more awkward. But it's also really good against Vanishing Verse and Blood on the Snow, as long as you can dodge the Kayas. But, uh, I mean, anyway, I, I recently had very good Immersturm Predator experiences, but it sounds like you still haven't gotten there with that card. I just haven't lost against it, man. I mean, that's like, I've beaten it with Mono Green, I've beaten it with Simic, obviously. It's pretty bad against Simic. Yeah, um, really bad there. Really bad against Divide yeah. by Zero. Really bad. Yep. <laughs> A pretty bad scene. It's also just small, right? It it seems like it's big, but against a really big plan, it ends up being pretty small. And then there are also some matchups where, like, you just actually don't want to be sacking all your creatures, right? Like, for example, you know, sometimes mono green goes pretty wide. Mm. And if you're just like sacking away all of your creatures, it can be kind of a problem. So I've, for me, I found that card to be slow and a little bit not particularly impactful. But again, I've always been a critic of the card. So I suppose it could just be confirmation bias that like I win against it and I'm like, ha, yeah, see, see, you suck. But in my mind, I'm, I guess I'm searching for like the ideal speed of format or the ideal style of format for a card like Immerstone Predator. And I just don't. I guess I just don't feel like we have it. Understood. I don't know if it would make the cut in the ideal Rakdos list. I think that you're using most of the treasure effects you would have in the Blood on the Snow, the other Blood Money Kaya deck, right? You're using all that early game. Mm -hmm. Now you get Kalein, so you're incentivized to play some creatures because you can make them big. Now you should play Goldspan mm -hmm. Dragon because you're a deck in 2022 that has red. So if you're not doing <laughs> yep. that, you're probably doing it there wrong. You go. And then it's like, what else do we do? There's usually like eight more spots. Tybalt Valky is good, but it's really slow, and it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to just be able to stick that in a spot where it takes over the game because it's hard to defend. Orcus is super mana intensive, and I think what I've learned most about Orcus is that it's a good card, but Blood on the Snow is the better version of it because you get the board wipe and the yep. creature, whereas with Orcus, like, you wipe all your things and you're left with a the 5-3 trample sometimes. It's kind of, eh. Yeah. And you have to pay life. So, I don't know. Rakdos, I don't know what to fill that Rakdos deck out with that makes it good against everything. It, it has the nut draws for sure, where you just drop dragon and win. But, like I said before, you play too long and you only see, you see the fails. You feel the fails more than you feel the, the big epic openings. Yep, and like I said before, the only times I really feel like a dog to that deck are when they get their turn three avatar down. Now they may even play that. Haven't really you know? struggled against it that much. Like, it's kind of a feature of the Mardu deck, but not a lot of Rakdos mm -hmm. lists go there, the ones without showdown. 
Kind of strange. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe a rebuild is required again. But man, does that card misclaim? You already said that, but yeah, it, it's true. It's it's so true, and I think that that's one of the really interesting things about the Mardu colors in general is that you look down the list, and there are so many strong cards. You know, it's not a combo that is in search of powerful cards. I mean, you can do all of these different builds, and they all have strong top ends, and mm-hmm. I mean, they all have solid plans, right? And it's just there's something about that configuration which in my opinion is just not quite getting it done over the other options. The smaller mid-range deck perhaps is a saying that the competitive community uses to say you're doing good stuff in the middle of the game, but it's not the best stuff in the middle of the game. And I think you highlighted a really good point, which is that there are just some really go-over-the-top cards in this format, like Blood on the Snow, some of the green rampy stuff just goes way over the top. Even just a really solid Is It Dragons opening can go way over the top of this deck. So I think you're right. Even though it has access to very big bot affecting plays and lots of mana, it somehow just still ends up feeling a little small ball. You can definitely mythic. It's another case of very strong cards. You can mythic with Rakdos, but I wouldn't tier it because I just yeah. don't know what's better than Mardu. I would probably tier two and maybe knock on that tier one door if I put in the reps. I I, I believe more in the deck with Showdown of the Skulls Mm -hmm. for card advantage, and that really takes advantage of Extus. Mm -hmm. I I believe a lot more in that deck than I do Rakdos. Yeah, and I think you nailed it where, like, when people like Paulo Vitor or Autumn Burchett or, like, some of these really just, like, super big brain players put their mind to it, they could probably really come up with some very devastating builds of the deck. Not that we couldn't, but it, I just think that that's often what it takes to get a deck like that really big in the meta is to have like some really big brain player put in a lot of time and just really fill it out properly. So maybe we'll see that in the upcoming matters. Uh, oh, the comments are going to roast me if I don't mention it, but Paulo did put out a video playing Mardu Sacrifice. So there you go. Yeah, he, he it is on his channel, PVDDR, on YouTube. Nice. So, yep, so he's already thinking about it, already putting his stamp of approval on it. Another deck I wanted to just ask you about was you mentioned, like, a Teemer ramp deck, and I've seen this going around, some other people having similar ideas. Where do you put that deck? Like, do you think that deck is tier? Do you think it's better than the Simic one? Do you think it's worse than the Simic one? I think it's a case of two decks doing very similar things, one with better matchups here or there and the other with better matchups elsewhere. Yeah. You you trade off a little bit of your mana security for a more resilient game plan against decks packed with removal because you're a spell-based deck. Yeah. Your, your wing cons all like draw more cards and grind through somebody who's planning to vanishing versus your big thing and win. But it's going to do a lot worse against because it doesn't have like board wipe attached to body aka cyclone summoner against the decks that are just spamming the board it has to draw battle of frost and fire battle of frost and fire has to kill everything which isn't always how battle of frost and fire works there's nothing worse than when you're up against the party deck you play your battle of frost and fire but they have like two changelings left and they untap and play their squad commander and their arc priest and they're on full party again you know (laughs) it's really embarrassing (laughs) yeah probably doesn't line up well against limbala either so i I think it's a case of I don't know how to separate the decks when thinking about tiering them because they both want to do the same things. They Mm want to ramp in the mid game, take over in the late game. Simic is going to do great against decks that are vulnerable to Cyclone Summoner or have a particular vulnerability to Coma. And the Teamer ramp deck is going to do great against people who 
are sitting on removal spells and hoping to interact with your key piece on a one-for-one basis. It's just, it's a different, it's two sides of the same coin. That's true that, like, having a spell-based finisher is really a different thing in this format, because a lot of people aren't really prepared for that. It's one of the reasons why I actually liked the Crackle with Power plan, right? Is it's just, it's a plan that most people aren't ready for. It's the kind of plan that only Control really consistently disrupts, and as we've seen, Control's just not really a thing in the format. Yeah, I like I like that distinction a lot. Okay, cool. Well, we could, of course, talk about more decks, but I think that that was a good lineup, and I'm feeling pretty excited to get to the main topic here. So, rotation. So, so many words have been said already about this ridiculous format, but I do think that as we show the door to some of these powerful sets, with Eldraine being at the top of the list, I do think there is a lot to learn. Just as a preface to all of this, I have had incredible fun playing with a lot of these cards that we're going to kind of rake over the coals here. And I know that you have as well, CGB. Yes. Yes, I have. Lots of memories were made. Yep. Could I do some stage dressing? Do. Please do. Oh, my gosh. It was just two years ago, man. It was two years ago. Arena had launched. The world was a very different place. And there was a lot of talk that this new client was going to conquer the world. You know, finally put Hearthstone in its place as the inferior card game. All the magic nerds always said it was, you know, and that this new client was just going to change everything. And I remember I was at PAX when they played the trailer for War of the Spark and just the intermingling between kind of a modern, almost music video feel and the lore and what was to come in magic was so exciting. And Wizards R&D took on this moment in time where I feel like they really had an opportunity to take magic to the next level by releasing some of the most powerful cards in history. And it really started in War of the Spark and M20 was Mm -hmm. insanely powerful for a core set. But those sets rotated last year and they've kind of flown away. But what they left in their wake was the fall set, Eldraine, which may be one of the most overpowered sets given the context of its time. Mm -hmm. But definitely... In the absence of War in the Spark and M20, when those rotated, like the biggest shadow a fall set could ever cast. Just complete dominance by one pile of of cards that we just saw again and again. And so many cards were banned. So many tournaments were played in this format because Arena was new. And since its release, Eldraine has been legal in every format on Arena. And that has been true, like, like every competitive format, best of three format on Arena. And it will be true until September when rotation happens. And then we will have our first competitive format without Eldraine on MTG Arena since its release. And it has just, it can't be stated enough. It has taken over every format. Mm -hmm. Historic and standard have just been dominated by these cards. Mm -hmm. And so many things have been banned and so many things could have been banned. So I don't think it's possible to overhype this rotation. This is the biggest rotation in Arena's history for sure. It's one of the biggest of all time. The only thing I kind of want to compare it to Kaladesh, because Kaladesh was very powerful, but I don't remember it being that bad. I can compare it to Mirrodin, because Affinity was broken. That's it. Affinity was broken. I also think there was that rotation where it was what? It was like Blue Devotion and Black Devotion. What was that set? That was the first Theros. 
I didn't feel like it was close. Okay. Maybe you have a different opinion of that time, but I was I was pretty happy with Magic at the time. Okay. I was excited for Rotation, but not pissed at Devotion. You know? I wasn't playing during that time. I've just heard that that was kind of a legendarily codified standard where, you know, we had some stuff that was just head and shoulders above the rest. I mean, I'll take your word for it because, you know, I wasn't playing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that this is, if not the biggest Rotation ever, then probably number two. And regardless, it's kind of like, you know... I don't know. It's like comparing Ronaldo to Ronaldinho or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just... Oh, man. <laughs> Jordan versus LeBron versus Kobe, man. Exactly. Who, that's who what was I'm the most overpowered in their time? Yeah. But I don't think any set has cast a shadow the way that Eldraine has. And I think a big reason for that, to be honest... It's hard to remember this now, but you used to have to go out and get an opponent to play Magic or download Magic online. Yeah. You used to have to shuffle cards between games. If you went to the local game store and played FNM once a week and you'd spend all week like reading articles and thinking of tech of how you would go win your local FNM or your local PTQ or your qualifier. And that was your engagement with Magic. And MTG Arena, like it put Magic like in front of you every day. And we know from our survey that our users play Magic Arena a ton. Yeah. I think more games of this format and with Eldraine Legal have been played than with any set before. Anything else. I agree. In history. So when we say we're sick of Bonecrusher, Giant, and Embercleave, it's because never in the history of the game have this many of that of those cards been cast. CGB... Not close. This raises an interesting question for me. Do you think that Embercleave has ended more games of Magic than any other card in Magic's history? <laughs> maybe, maybe Lightning Bolt takes that cake? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I honestly think that we don't have the stats, mm -hmm. but I think the exponential growth you would see in games. I mean, just think of what it took to sit down and play a game in paper. Think mm -hmm. of the shuffling. Think of the cutting decks. Think of just how much more people like engage either in banter or in contemplation in paper. And then compare it to the average length of an arena game, which I can tell you when playing aggro is four to six minutes. Yep. <laughs> and you're <laughs> like, true. boom, right back into the next one. Yeah. I think you're right. I think Embercleave has probably ended more games of Magic than any card in history. It would be really interesting to look at the numbers. And if that's the case, I mean, we just have to give it up for that card. But I feel like first, perhaps what would be great to do with Eldraine in particular is to take it chronologically, because we've just had like the many eras of Eldraine, right? We did. So we did. let's rewind all the way back to the beginning. Week one of Eldraine... And one of the first things that became eerily apparent to everyone was that this weird planeswalker, this weird Oko planeswalker that no one quite knew what to make of, everyone thought it had something going on. Very few people suspected that it would end up going on to be the best planeswalker of all time. But it didn't take very long for people playing standard to start going like, Hmm, this, hmm, wow, this card hmm. is, wow, okay, hold on, this card's actually really pretty good. And so one of the first iterations of that standard format was that we were seeing these decks built around Gilded Goose. There was like this holy trifecta of Gilded Goose, Once Upon a Time, and Oko. Oh, oh, if I may, <laughs> go. I prepared to talk about Oko. Yeah. I looked up the first video I released, the day Eldraine became legal. Yeah. And it was... The very first game I played with Eldraine Legal, turn one, once upon a time, Gilded Goose, next turn, Oko Thief of Crowns. Oh my goodness. I went on 
to win that game after misplaying so horribly because I had no idea what to do with the card, but everything I did just got me further ahead by so much it didn't matter. It's a really funny rewatch to do. I played terribly and I, it wasn't close. Yeah. It was an insane thing to watch. I've heard even top level pro players relate that exact story of like cast Oko on two, had no idea what to do with it, won anyway, lol. If Bottle Brush wants to put like the graphic here, or if anybody wants to find that video, the title is Food is Broken. <laughs> Oko is Broco. New standard deck. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I think of that deck as like the ultimate mid-range deck, right? It was like a low-curve aggro, somehow mid-range Planeswalker deck, right? Like, it had that kind of just like take over the game instantly kind of early game but then it also had like a pretty much an unbreakable mid to late game as well i mean it had a turn two threat that was a must answer or it could take over the game from either position if you're behind you just keep neutralizing their threats or gaining life and they have to keep attacking this thing that has infinite loyalty if you're ahead you just start beating them down with free three threes like every turn or every other turn. And if they play something that might start to stabilize their board to catch them up, you just steal it. Yep. Yoink. That, that's fine. Yep. No big deal. Yep. Crazy. And then, of course, you know, Crafties, maybe some of you weren't playing during that time, but we also had the Nissa Crisis combo in the same deck. Oh. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was already, you know, Nissa and her jellyfish pet were already had been bullying matters for months and months and months. So when you just throw all of these cards together, and I'm trying to remember, was that a growth spiral deck as well? First, it was questionable yeah. because it didn't really curve with Oko yeah. all the time, but it became one when Oko was gone easily. Yeah. But yeah, you could play Gross Spiral in that you deck could. if you wanted to go big quickly. So, I mean, it was really just like, if you go down the list, it was basically a list of like standard greatest hits, most versatile money, devastating face smashing cards ever. Before we go on to that card being banned, let's just highlight a few of the other things that Oko did. Like, I don't know, take over every competitive format in Magic ever. <laughs> like... Yeah. It, it was basically, uh, this is what I feel like happened. It basically bogged its way back in time, right? So quickly took over standard. Then, you know, people tried it in Pioneer. It was apparent that it was just absolutely redonkulously busted in that format. And then they were like, well, all right, modern. Here's the modern format. Is it good? Yep, it is insanely good in modern. Legacy, just no problem. And then even freaking vintage, CGB, the Force of Will format. You can pitch it to Force of Will. It's good deal. <laughs> there though. you go. I mean, I think it was like within the month, someone was winning a vintage tournament by attacking with like a, what was it? A Black Lotus that had been Oko. Yeah, a viral clip was an elk <laughs> Black Lotus attack for Lethal to win the vintage, I believe it was the vintage championship, which is kind of an underground thing at this point. They don't really publicize it, but. That is probably about as magic as Richard Garfield intended it as possible. <laughs> so here, Here's the Oko Thief of Crowns list. Standard, banned. Pioneer, banned. Modern, banned. Legacy, banned. Brawl, banned. Historic, banned. Legal in Commander? Legal in Vintage. As a one-off, right? In vintage? Or is it just a, a regular uh, Is it restricted of? in vintage? It just says legal. So basically banned in like basically everywhere ever. 
I mean, this guy is like, this is Oko. Oko's like that guy that just gets thrown out of every single bar he's ever walked into. And there's just, oh yeah, <laughs> there's just like a long list of wanted signs trailed behind him. I mean, he's like Loki, is what he is. I, he was meant to be this way. Yeah. yeah. I, he was meant to cause trouble from the beginning. Yeah. So what do you think we learned from Oko Thief of Crowns as far as evaluating cards? Because I think one of the interesting stories about Oko is how there were a lot of people who were just not excited about this card. Yeah. I rated it, I think I rated it as my number, it was either my number one, I think it was my number two card in the set. Mm -hmm. It was either my number one or number two. Gosh, I should find that article for fun. But while I do that, what what did we learn from Oko? Okay, so the first thing we learned from Oko was just that low-cost, high-loyalty planeswalkers are dangerous. That was one thing that they really tested the waters with. Like, for example, the Royal Scions was another planeswalker which had that same templating. Now, that planeswalker ended up being basically unplayable. So they didn't, you know, they didn't choose the right modes on that planeswalker necessarily. But if you have ever played against it, you can still remember that feeling of like, oh god, it's just going to take so much work to get the stupid thing off the battlefield. And in the meantime, it's doing whatever it's doing, right? So Oko was really just, it just had too much loyalty. So that was the first thing that we learned from Oko. I think the next thing that we learned from Oko and Unfortunately, it was basically the, the skull clamp problem, right? Where something that we think of as being a potential downside actually ends up being an upside. So I think the idea with Oko was that we can elk our opponent's stuff, but then they get a 3-3 that can attack Oko. And it's kind of a cool idea when you think about it, like a planeswalker which neutralizes your opponent's threat, but then gives your opponent's like answers to the planeswalker. Not a bad idea. I think they just underrated how bad a vanilla 3-3 is in modern magic and how good everything else was. Yeah. And the fact that Oko could just, I don't know, neutralize your opponent's great henge, neutralize your opponent's big legendary creature, neutralize your opponent's whatever the problem was, they neutralized it. It feels like invalidated everything. Yeah. Everything that wasn't Oko or another planeswalker, like Nissa. You know, planeswalkers were one of the things Oko couldn't hit. Enchantments were a thing that Oko couldn't hit. Yeah. But yeah, just kind of unreal how, how many things just didn't matter with Oko. Thief of Crowns on the board. Yeah. Oh, can I also throw this one in? Okay. Maybe we learned that now that we made this push planeswalker that just cranks everything into a vanilla 3-3, maybe we learned that just having players bounce vanilla 3-3s off each other isn't fun. <laughs> yep. That That is very true, my friend. That is very true. It's hard to describe. I almost feel like formats with Oko felt like they were wearing sumo suits, you know? Mm -hmm. Where it's just like all of these like <laughs> thick board states just chest bumping until someone eventually falls over. <laughs> not, not a bad analogy. Okay, two quick things on Oko. Number one, First of all, I had it as my number two card in the set. Good job. I would ask you to guess the number one, but it's too embarrassing, so I'm just going to reveal it. Okay. I had Murderous Rider as the number one card in the set. You know, a lot of people rated that card highly. Uh, and uh, let's be real. I mean, in some previous standards, that really would have been a, a top shelf card. And it went on to see almost no play because tempo became everything and answers became so much worse than threats. All right. Other thing. Question. You said it earlier, like it was definitive. I feel like we at least need to give it some words. Is Oko the greatest planeswalker of all time? Easily. Easily. Easily the greatest planeswalker of all time. I think you're right. I, I just don't think, I don't think another planeswalker comes close. And gosh, we only had it in standard for what, two, three months? 
And man, could have been so much worse. I'm wondering when, and I don't think it is as far out as you might think, Crafties. I'm wondering when Jace the Mind Sculptor is coming to Historic. <laughs> just reprinted in standard. It might just be a standard card now. It's power creep, man. I mean, how the mighty have fallen, right? I mean, it was once banned from modern. They brought it back. No one cared. Jumpstart Historic Horizons. Just throw Jace in there. See what happens. You know, I wouldn't put it past him, and I wouldn't put it past Jace to be not actually that good in Historic. Because, I mean, yeah, Oko and Jace were both legal in multiple formats, and you know who won? You know who's banned? Oko. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I don't think there's real competition. I think you're right. They printed the best Planeswalker of all time on MTG Arena. And actually, you know, I don't know, number two is probably like some tie between maybe Ren and Six, which is an incredible Planeswalker... And maybe Teferi Time Raveler. I mean, if we're being honest, that card, what a banger that ended up being. Also got banned. Yep, yep. Anyway, so that was the first wave. That was the first wave. We had a famous Pro Tour that was just completely crapped all over by Oko. That happened. So now let's fast forward to the banning. Now I'm trying to remember what they banned. I th was It was Oko and... Once Upon a Time, I think, were banned at the same time. I believe it was a little bigger than that. Okay. I believe that... Okay, I've got November 18th, 2019, the end of the line. And in standard, Oko is banned. Once Upon a Time is banned, which we didn't even really cover, but just that card should never exist. Maybe nope. we can cover our lessons from Once Upon a Time. Yep. But they also banned Veil, Veil of Summer. Veil of Summer. That's, mm -hmm. that's the other one. Yep, which was another just M20 totally broken card but we don't need to talk about that because that was a previous rotation so yeah once upon a time let's just talk briefly yeah. about the problem with that card i mean free spells busted that's just generally the way it goes in magic i think that the idea the design team idea was that the other three are end up going to be like being not particularly great in your deck and i think what they underestimated was just how that just really doesn't matter when you get to do your busted start right for me that's what we learned is that like if the if the fail case of your card if the bad version of your card is basically invalidated by just having it in your opening hand does for you then you haven't tweaked the dials properly. I have a theory that once upon a time was the answer to a very to a problem that they've never solved well, which is that they yeah. were rotating the shock lands and the check lands. Mana bases were awesome. Oof. They really were. And That's they true. weren't reprinting a good fix. Uh, Eldraine's for dual lands, you know, got fabled passage. Like, pathways were a ways away. Triomes were still yet to come. So the mana bases got really ugly there for a little while. Mm -hmm. And they were going to get uglier because, what was it? Was it the check lands that were still in one of the core sets? It's hard to remember exactly. But basically, mana got a lot worse. Which it threatened to ruin, it always threatens to ruin standard because standard is defined yeah. by what you can do with mana. So they printed two cards and we'll get to the other one, but the one of them is definitely once upon a time where I think they tried to add consistency to mana base so that you could run like a two color aggro deck with four dual lands and not another four dual lands, which is kind of the threshold you need for that consistency that enter the battlefield untapped so you can play aggressive cards and play things early. And they tried to replace all that with this 
innocuous green card called Once Upon a Time. You can imagine a world where green-white counters, a deck that had so many cards printed for it, but never took off because there were just too many times where you had to start on Temple of Plenty and you never got traction in the game. There is a world where Once Upon a Time enables a deck like that to curve out strong and powerful. The problem yeah. is they just, like, if it's not the most busted start you can be doing, it makes finding that busted start so powerful that everybody needs to play the deck with the busted start. Because there, there's yeah. just no other decent answer to turn one goose, turn two Oko, or whatever the next best thing is after Oko gets banned. And let's be honest, that level of consistency, your opponent having the nut draw every game... That's not fun. That takes so much of what's fun right yeah. out of Magic. I just remember that the London Mulligan came along, and that's another topic that we could touch on in this whole discussion that made things more consistent. And the strategy at Pro yeah. Tour Oko, where Oko was 69% of the meta, nice, is like mulligan until you can turn to Oko or answer it or do something better. Mm -hmm. And just going to five. I, I remember a match between like, Strasky and Paulo Vitor Domodoros on Sunday where they're just both mulliganing lower and lower but it's like all that matters is that your turn one goose turn two Oko and once upon a time makes it possible to mulligan for it so why wouldn't you yeah also just how obnoxious was it to like you know you're like taking your first turn and you're on the play and your opponent already has stick <laughs> how obnoxious I was have that, scooped dude? turn one games of historic brawl to that <laughs> It's just not fair. It's not fair. It's just it's not, not cool, fair. dude. Not cool. I'm straight so up gone. Just, I'm out. I there's stick, and I know they have once yeah. upon a time, and my hand looks awkward, and I'm out. I'm I'm not. I'm not entertaining this. You're like this is this is how this story ends. Once upon a time, the end. Once upon a time, <laughs> bye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so that era ended, and then it left this huge sucking power vacuum. And there was this fun period. I actually remember that was a pretty fun period to be playing on Arena. Because, so what were people trying out? I think the next big deck that really came in was Fires of Invention. Yep, yep. Fires and Sacrifice and Nissa Crisis stuff was still very popular. And those decks were like slugging it out for a while. And it took us a while. I think it took everyone a while to A of all realize how strong Fires of Invention was and B of all actually make the deck, right? And again, this was a deck that was enabled by some very, very powerful cards from M20 in the form of Cavalier of redness what was that one sure called? redness cavalier of red flame. to the face cavalier of flame okay yep and it actually for a while played the blue cavalier as well although that one eventually got phased out cavalier of gales yep that's right it was just kind of interesting because i think that card was kind of like wilderness reclamation where we all knew it was busted and we just didn't know quite how to actually break it in half. And I actually remember, was it Martin User? It might have been Martin User who came up with the original Fires Cavalier deck. The pro story of it is that Martin User at the time was... I believe staying at the Czech house with Andrei Strasky, Stanislav Sivka, who have innovated such things as Kethis Combo in the past. And this was very recent. Like, this was August of the same year that that had happened. So they're they're pretty high mm -hmm. on innovation and a very respected deck-building team. And yeah, they debuted the Fires of Invention deck. I think it was shortly after those Oko bands. And I remember it because I was playing in a Fandom Legends. 
And I saw this deck mm. and literally grabbed it the night before and uh, just sleeved nice. it up and went for it. And uh, results were varied, but I believe I beat world champion Javier Dominguez in a mirror. So uh, I'll take go. that one with me. Thank you. Check, please. We don't have to talk about the rest of that <laughs> tournament. Didn't go well. But I definitely learned that I didn't know how to play or sequence that deck well. It actually took reps to get good at, and it took understanding what was yep. important, and it was another deck that you just mulligan till you have what you need. And I think what was really telling yep. about that deck, the more you played it, the more you were like, well, we need like 30 lands. We can just never miss a land because it doesn't matter what mm -hmm. we draw as long as we draw fires enough lands to cast it in one or two cavaliers. You know, that was it. Yep. And, uh, I, it was kind of crazy that the way things went, we were just raising the land count because lands were just better than anything else we could pack into the deck because of the way it played out and acted like a combo deck for turn five. Well, and again, it just highlights the fact that, like, who cares about flooding when our A plan just freaking kills them so, so often, often, right? And then the sweet thing about that deck was that your B plan is probably just, like, top deck a Cavalier and freaking pump some mana into it and swing in with haste anyway. So it actually had some pretty solid kind of, you know... One of the cool things about that deck was that it just played so many haymakers that if the game went late, you were so dangerous off the top of your deck, yeah, right? Yeah, any time that you were in turns six, seven, eight, and the opponent had land, it was like, they'll just play Cavalier Flame or Kenrith and kill me. <laughs> like the, There's yeah. just a giant haste monster coming at you every turn. Good luck. Exactly. So those were the best versions of the deck at the time. However, it's kind of like, I feel like there have been almost as many builds of Fires as there have been builds of Yorian. And if CGB had had slightly different branding, you might have made like the 12 days of Fires of Invention. <laughs> but <laughs> if it hadn't been banned, um, regardless, <laughs> if it hadn't been banned, maybe. Yeah. It hadn't been banned, right? Exactly. But I remember Gruul versions which were playing that trampler thing that made more tramplers. Mm -hmm. That was a fun thing that was going on for a while. You know, people, when Akaria came out, people were trying these fires decks that played a number of ultimatums. Yep. That was some fun nonsense to be doing. But do you remember what got it banned? Yes. Yes, I do. Featuring another freaking M20 card. The world's most hated double agent. Yes. Agent of... Agent... Of treachery of treachery okay so agent of treachery was kind of like the Alrin's epiphany of the day everyone hated it it was a groaner you know was just frequently showing up in these really annoying decks like Alrin's epiphany it was kind of a slow burn that just kind of kept on picking up and picking up and picking up momentum but it didn't reach the actual fever pitch until the deck which danny t law still swears that he brewed which was the Luke... What was the official name of it? Luke of Fires? I feel like if it had come around in like the 2000s, it would have a name, like something like brutal. Yeah. It would it would be like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of a good one, but uh, <laughs> like Batista Throat Punch or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would exactly. have some kind of a bizarre name. Like Blue, yeah. blue Bowling Ball <laughs> oh, or something. Oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this was basically, it was like a Ponza deck disguised as a mid-range deck. That's basically what it was. That is so boomer, I, I'm here for it. So Ponza is a land destruction <laughs> mid-range deck in an older format. And you're using that reference because yeah. the whole deck's design is to cheat Agent of Treachery into play, but you usually end up stealing land. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was just, I mean, man, that deck was so It cool. had to go. That was. It was too good. 
That was quite literally one of the most rage-inducing decks I've ever played. And it was the most popular deck by a mile. You played that or you played Mono Red and tried to kill it before it could do anything. It polarized the meta so much. You could not control it. Like, you could not play a slow game against it. It ran four copies of Teferi Time Raveler, the ultimate control beater. But aside from that, every card in it was a banger. You couldn't stop them all. Dude, let's list some of them off. So that deck played Teferi Time Raveler. It played Nosset Potter of Veils, Yorian, of course, the Sky Noodle himself, probably the best Yorian deck ever yep. by a mile, Fires of Invention, Agent of Treachery. It did play Luca Coppercoat Outcast, which, while has never been remotely as good as it was in that deck, has still showed up in some pretty strong decks, cheating out kind of lesser threats like Coma, for it has example. has to crap. Like, it wouldn't be this podcast <laughs> if you didn't take a dump on Coma when you could. Two of the unheralded cards, I think you mentioned Elspeth Conqueror's Death. It it's hard to remember now how great oh, ECD God. was when it could get back oh, to Fairy God. and Narset. Like, getting those back was just brutal. brutal. Because they were such low opportunity brutal, cost, and you had to get them off the board, or they ruined so many strategies. But if they just get it back with their ECD, it's so hard to play around it. Like, I hold up a counterspell. Cool. I get back to Fairy, and now I do my combo. It was so nasty. But another card in that deck that was completely underrated was Shark Typhoon, which lets you completely cheat on Fires of Invention because you can still do stuff on the opponent's turn. You can play around counter magic, generate epic threats that like will kill them so they can't just hold up their mana forever. Uh, Shark Typhoon is another card that was a little bit of a slow burn and not everybody was excited for, but another card that's rotating that people are probably might be tired of. I'm... I'm okay with it, but man, is that card uh, a killer. Oh, Shark Typhoon. What is, a killer. Oh, that card is such a bummer, man. That card is a mellow harsher, man. I think once that card is gone, only then will people start to understand just how amazing it was, especially in control matchups. Just the ultimate control killer, really. Like, games without it now are so much different in Standard 2022. Yeah. It's one of those things where you don't realize it's missing until the opponent passes without doing anything, and you're like, oh, crap, Shark Typhoon, wait a minute! I don't <laughs> have to play around <laughs> an uncounterable flash blocker exactly. here. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that deck was just unbelievably filthy, yeah. right? So that was kind of the plot arc of Fires of Invention. So, Kovaka Blue, what did we learn from Fires of Invention? Fires of Invention is the other card I alluded to that I believe tried to fix some of the mana problems that the new format would face by giving mid-range decks this mm. card that they could play, and then they don't have to worry about complicated mana costs anymore. And with Ikoria coming up, the idea of playing an ultimatum without having to have perfect mana in a format with difficult mana, that that's kind of appealing, you know? And I, I think it was designed a lot for that purpose, as well as some combo decks that never really came together. But there are a lot of neat things you can do with Fires of Invention. I think we learned, like, four mana and the single red cost. It's just... The single red, that was a killer. It's just too cheap and too easy to play in anything. And I think that Wilderness Reclamation taught us the same story. Mana doublers, no matter how sneaky they are, it's just too brutal. It's too exploitable. Mm -hmm. Maybe we also learned that enchantments... Just not every deck is a setup to deal with or beat enchantments, so they're actually hard to remove. So when you play a mana doubling enchantment on four, and then find any way to basically have ten mana available on turn five, you win that game, and the opponent feels... While you might feel like you absolutely did everything, the opponent feels like there was no game played. And Fires of Invention was part of just exploiting that, in my opinion. Just absolutely ramping that up to eleven. 
Absolutely. And I mean, if you think about some of the bonkers decks that we've seen, like these Niv-Mizzet Reborn decks, for example, you know, these five color fires decks, it, it just really highlights the versatility of that card. And, um, and the greed. Mm. Basically, I, for me, I think it's one of the greediest cards I've ever seen printed because if you just lay out some of those deck lists, man, I mean, it's like, like more five drops than you've ever seen. You know, certainly in a standard deck. An appeal to the kind of the Timmy magic player who just wants to play all their powerful stuff and not worry about their mana or the other things like that, or the kind of, as you say it, being a grown up about your mana base. Like we just threw that out the window for a little while and let Timmy have the fun. The thing is that takes away a lot of what people love about magic. Solving those puzzles while it can be constraining is also a lot of what breeds creativity that feels rewarding. And I think that the creativity in Fires of Invention ran out quickly. I want to ask you something about Fires of Invention. Think about it after the last fall rotation, with Eldraine now being the oldest set in the format, and what we have. Would Fires of Invention still have been broken? Did it need to be banned? Without Agent of Treachery, and without a lot of the things that rotated, and with a companion tax, what would a Fires deck be like now? Would it be busted? I mean, people would find a way, yeah. right? It, you know, maybe it would end up being some kind of an interesting gruel deck or something, you know? Interesting for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> the first minute, time you see exactly. it, you're like, cool. And then like a month later, you're like, good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, CGB, can you imagine the combination of Fires of Invention and Allrin's Epiphany? Just let that one sit for a moment. Yeah, I'm over it. <laughs> he's he's already over it. I'm and good. So am I. Moving on. Okay. So now, as I remember it, while Fires was on its ascension and its inevitable decline, another card which was just it was a slow burn, which turned into a fever pitch and then became a full-on blaze. Emberqueave. Mm. And this is what I remember, Kovac Go Blue. Tell me how you remember it, but this is how I remember it, is that I just remember playing the ladder and playing against some stupid Gruel deck. I remember people were really trying to make Gruel work all throughout this standard, and the mana was terrible, and they were still just trying it anyway. And you had these memers playing cards like Barkhide Troll in their Gruel decks and stuff like that. I mean, just awful, awful stuff. But I remember losing once to Embercleave and being like, whoa, that was unexpected. I just took like 14 damage in one turn. Damn. All right, whatever. And then I lost to it again. And I was like, wow, that sucked for me. <laughs> Damn. Maybe this meme card is actually something. I yeah. I feel like it took a while uh -huh. for it to become like having that like dreaded pit feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like, oh God, they have Embercleave. I'm going to lose another game. How did it happen for you? Aggro was pronounced dead. Mono Red was pronounced <laughs> dead when the rotation happened because Oko just like had its way with it. And then even after that, yeah. they had to deal with Krasis, Nissa, Cat Oven, which we'll talk about later. Aggro was pronounced dead. And then there was that Rakdos deck and Gruul as well. But uh, the Rakdos deck, I think, was around just before that because Oko was still legal at the time when this first yeah. showed up. And or no, this, it was Mardu Knights. That's what it was. Mardu Knights. I remember that nonsense. It was Kenyuka Hero. It was Mardu Knights, yeah. but it had Rotting Regisaur and Embercleave. Yeah. And I remember watching the coverage of that event, and Kenyuka Hero got featured because he was one of the few people with a winning record without Oko in their deck in the room. And I just remember, yeah. okay, he untapped with Rotting Regisaur. Here he comes. Here comes the Embercleave. And oh, they're dead. <laughs> 16 damage to the face yeah uh very impressive and the card definitely went on to become the hope of aggro 
There was a period of time, mm-hmm. because I track these things every day. I follow, like, what's doing it in Best of One Ladder. And a Rakdos Rotting Regis or Knights deck with Embercleave, like, rose to the most played deck on the Arena Best of One Ladder. It was the most represented. And that is where you kind of knew that this card had kind of a Splinter Twin vibe with anything with enough power to really bust through. It feels like around four, five, six is where you start taking too much of a hit from Embercleave to survive. You can count on your early spells to get in about 10. If you get another mm-hmm. 10 from an Embercleave, they're probably done. We also saw those builds being like, forget burn spells. Hell, forget removal spells. All creatures. Because having enough creatures to make your Embercleave cheap was not a thing. It was the thing. Well, it's one of the reasons why Bonecrusher was so good, right? Is that it did double duty. It filled out that, you know, early removal. And of course, in the mid game, the removal didn't matter as much because you were probably just slamming him in the face with Embercleave. And I think that Embercleave just, it just kept getting better. Like, this is my memory of Embercleave. I mean, of course, when Theros came out and then we had like yeah. the real god deck with Anax. Now, remind me, was there a time when we had access to Anax and Light Up the Stage and Steamkin. In Historic. Was that a deck that was possible? Not in Standard, right? No, not in Standard. Okay, so we didn't have both of those. Or was it? I don't remember how the rotation worked. Yeah, I think that... Okay, that did last. From Theros... From when Theros came out in the spring until the fall of that... Of uh, 2020, right? Yeah, okay. That was... That was possible. I think so. I think that there was a period where we had such greatest hits as Runaway Steamkin. We had Light Up the Stage. We had Annex. What was the one drop lizard? Oh, Scorch Spitter. The face burning one. Scorch Spitter. I'm not enjoying this. CGB's favorite one drop. (laughs) We have to talk about these cards. And of course, Torbran, Embercleave. I mean, this deck is just like, it has to be one of the most ferocious mono red decks that has ever existed in history. In fact, this deck was so good. It was so good that it made notable mid-range player Seth Manfield. Seth Manfield is like, like the Golgari Sultai mastermind, right? And uh, Seth loves mono red. He, well, it turned him is what I'm saying. The deck turned him. You know, it like it, it was another one of these decks that just bogged into him. It touched him and then it like assimilated into his arm and just and then it was all over. OK, flex moment. I had a conversation with Seth Manfield, world champion about this. And Seth has always loved and tried to get mono red mm-hmm. there for tournaments. He tries almost every mm-hmm. time and it just doesn't get there. But this one did. Heck yeah. And he was playing at the world championships and he had a very deep run as well. Oh, yeah. By the way, if you ever want a masterclass in how to play an aggressive deck, watch some of those videos of him playing the deck. The amount of restraint that he showed playing mono red was just unbelievable. I had there were what? some jaw dropping turns, man. Oh come on! If the sword is lit, we legit. That is that is all you need to know. That is all you need to know about Ember. I mean, we legit, but we don't win the world championship. That's for sure. <laughs> no, no, I agree with you fully. I just had to make that joke because it's a throwback to the mono red song, which was also a channel meme of mine that was inspired by this deck and this card, yeah. which I mean, like some kind of mono red deck. I don't know if the War of the Spark version or the version with Annex and Embercleave was played more, but it has to be the most played deck in the history of Magic. Yeah because of how much people spammed it on the arena ladder. It really is insane when you think about it. It was 20 plus percent of the meta for years. Yeah. Years. 
Here's what I learned from Embercleave. You have to read the little words and the big ones. <laughs> or the short the short words and the long sentences. Yeah. Like you have to actually read the whole card. Because when you read the card, I remember this. I dismissed it along with the other mythic artifacts as mm. silly. And I like you read the first word flash. By the time that you're finished reading when Embercleave enters the battlefield, attach it to target creature you control. You forgot it had flash. Mm-hmm. And by the time you finish reading, equipped creature gets plus one, plus one, and has double strike and trample. You forgot all the stuff before Mm. that. It's actually an interesting exercise in putting it all together because Embercleave behaves nothing like what an equipment should. Mm -hmm. I mean, the second you read equipment, you have in your head a diagram of how this works. It's like an aura, but you don't lose value because you can move it. Like, equipment was always best used on small creatures because you can always just replace the fodder and you want your stuff to be cheap. Embercleave does exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. It does want you to have a lot of creatures, but it rewards you for getting it on something big. And, like, the value isn't in using it turn after turn, although you can. The value is in surprise, (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You did. (laughs) And, yeah, it's just the opposite of every equipment card we've ever run into. And if you tunnel vision on the equipment status, which is one of the first things you read, you have the wrong idea about the card the whole Mm. time. And if you forget while reading any part of the card about the rest of the card, it doesn't come together. And I think in general, it's just got enough text on it where even to this day, I sometimes think I know exactly what Emma Cleave does and I kind of forget exactly what it does. And that usually results in me dying. So, do you remember the first time you got Embercleaved on defense? I don't remember it exactly. I do, but I oh, just I just I remember do. dying a lot faster than I thought I was going to. My Hydrocrasis wanted to get frisky and go for <laughs> lethal, and then an Embercleave landed on a robber of the rich, and I was very sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, with that stealth reach as well, brutal, just brutal. Embercleave needs no introduction, and frankly, it needs no send-off either. You know, don't let the door hit you on the way out, Embercleave. That's all I gotta say to you. Bye, Felicia. Okay, you you hinted at it. Let's talk about it. Somewhere in the midst of all of this, people started putting together that when a cat loves an oven very much, magical things happen. This was another just like slow, slow, slow burn where it just took us months to really realize just how good that was. I have a great story about this. Okay, lay it on us. It's early access Throne of Eldraine. Like, if you, if I could go play another day in my life, I think the first day, the oh early access, God. you know, the, the streamer only yeah. event and MPL invite event that happened one day on Twitch before the set went live. If I could go live in that day over and over, I gladly would. So I'm going to set the scene. It's I've already completed my stream and I'm tired as hell, but you just can't go to bed because you have access to these sponsored Wizards accounts that are stocked with all the cards for 24 hours. And at the end of 24 hours, you don't get it anymore. And it's got all these Eldraine cards and they're so weird and so cool. And there's so many unknowns. And I am one of the only cards I had played with prior is they had this event where you could play the Corvold Brawl deck like a week before the Eldraine thing got released. It was like a promotional thing they did for the Brawl Commanders. And I remember thinking Corvold it's really cool. It's a lot of card draw, right? And with Cat Oven, it's like card draw every turn. That sounds sweet. So it's like four o'clock in the morning, and I have a deck with Fabled Passage, Mayhem Devil, Cauldron Familiar, Witches Oven, and Corvold uh, on day zero, on day negative one of the format. So looking back, I'm feeling good about that. Uh, also had Once Upon a Time, a little, a little busted. And I queue up against Andrea Mangucci. Now, I'm going to admit to something that some people will say is bad. 
I opened up his stream. I did not look at his cards. This was about hearing his reactions. It wasn't about knowing what he was playing. So I had him on in a window, but I just wanted to hear that sweet Andrea Mangucci mm. voice as I played my mm. cards. That's all I wanted from it. And I have no regrets about that. Reminder, we are playing each other on stocked accounts for 24 hours for entertainment. There is nothing to mm. win or lose here. There really isn't. And I would tell him about that, and I don't think he'd be mad. And if anybody wants to do that to me in such circumstances, I will understand. When we're literally not even on ladder. There's not even a rank to play for. Okay. So I play turn one cat, and he just starts laughing. He's like some silly person playing that cat. It's such a it's such a silly card. And I play like turn two oven. And over the next few turns, he's like, oh, this is very annoying. You know? He's just doing this over and over. Somewhere in there, I get out a Mayhem Devil, and I think I kill, like, his Llanowar Elves. He's just like, what's going on? He plays a Fabled Passage and cracks it, triggers my Mayhem Devil, kills another one of his Llanowar Elves. He's like, oh, that that is so, you know, he, like, kind of gives me yeah. a clap. Then I drop a Corvold, draw about 15 cards, and he's just sitting there looking at the board going, what <laughs> happened? What the hell happened? And then I think he said some kind of a curse word in Italian and conceded. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I idolize Andrea yeah. Mangucci. He's a legend to me. So picking up a win felt good. But I was also like, okay, this isn't mm -hmm. a meme. There is something broken in mm -hmm. here with this cat oven sacrifice stuff. And to say it played out that way, like it was annoying on day one. Oh my gosh, this lasted for like a Forever. year. Forever. Oh, oh my oh. god. It's still going on in his story. I mean, it's probably the only thing. It's the only thing I got tired of to match Ambercleave, to be honest. I think at the end of the day, if you line up the sheer frustration, Cat Oven is right up there. It, it is. Invalidated any creature that didn't have flying or trample. Just didn't matter anymore. You could chump it forever. Invalidated burn as a strategy. Just gave easy, repeatable life gain that was accessible in combo form from turn two mm. to any deck with black and witches of it. Mm -hmm. Crazy. The combos with Korvold, Mayhem Devil, just like, oh my gosh. It kind of took combo to a new level in a different form. Like these, you sort of get these creatures together that have these interesting interactions. It never felt like it hit scale like this, mm -hmm. where and now I take 15 actions in one turn cycle, kill your whole board, and draw 50 cards, is what it felt like. Oh. And if you want to see that, check out Pyotr Glagowski and his winning... The, like, just check out the last couple minutes of his match with Brad Nelson in the Mythic Championship. I think it's Mythic Championship 7, mm -hmm. the one that he won, where he's just... Pyotr is a, an awesome character anyway, and he just takes like 15 million actions does a billion things draws a billion cards kills all brad stuff and brad on his turn i'm not kidding a pro level event with like fifty thousand dollars on the line ropes just him. ropes him yep ropes him. <laughs> i remember that that was amazing uh... they're sitting right across from each other too you know they could peek around the monitor and brad shamelessly you ropes see brad him. sitting there <laughs> and his head's kind of down and the monitor's just like blanking out his glasses and you can't see his eyes and he's just got this like cheeky smirk on his face and you can tell he's just like fluff your pillows Piotr Kwiatkowski. like i'm so over you right now <laughs> dude how many people do you think got hardcore roped on arena oh God. because of cauldron familiar oh which is god a... seriously 
how much time if you added it up we're talking lifetimes oh man (laughs) and here's the thing is that it probably didn't even phase these like cat oven players because they take so much time oh my god they took so much time to take every game action right yeah i think the roping is just we want some of our own we want (laughs) some our time back man (laughs) we we're just trying to even the playing field man you i watched you do this for like 20 minutes i took like five minutes of game action i'm getting a little bit back from you on the way i mean can you remember like spell on the stack wait rope resolves (laughs) move to combat wait rope declare attackers (laughs) wait rope Oh my god. And you couldn't even so you got through combat and they did the whole cat of anything or whatever. It wasn't even done. It wasn't even necessarily done. They might have some more cat ovening to do at the end of their turn if they had another oven. I mean it was just oh my god. I I mean I want that time back. I will tell you today, it's a huge reason I don't touch historic. I, I remember the last time I played historic competitively was one of the qualifier events. And I faced three cat oven decks in four oh, rounds. God. And I, I could have, I could have probably battled out two of them. But after the first one, I was just over it and I didn't want to play anymore. After the first one, I was just like, get me out of here. I don't care what I could win. It's not worth it. It's not nope, worth I it. I want my Saturday back. So, exactly. Yeah. I still hope it gets banned in historic. So I might enjoy that format someday. Yeah. And I mean, especially if like Dragon's Rage Chandler and all these kind of decks become really popular, I don't see Cat Oven going anywhere either. Mayhem Devil still sounds still really sounds good. Sounds pretty yeah. good. Yep. So what I learned though from Cauldron Familiar is that combos that look silly and like minute return are still really good when they're cheap. Mm, yeah. When they're insanely cheap. If Oven had been like a three mana card, maybe it still would have happened, but it would have been a totally different experience. If Cauldron Familiar caught, went to hand instead of the battlefield and you had to pay a mana, mm-hmm. it might have still been a thing at some points, but it wouldn't be broken. Mm-hmm. I think from now on when somebody says, hey, I think there's a cool little combo between one mana card A and one mana card B, you have to pay attention. And that was something like I never would have gotten excited about cauldron familiar witches oven before i'll drain and now i'll be watching for it for the rest of my days yeah yeah i think never have two worst looking cards been so good i just can't think of another example in magic history where you took two such kind of rando low impact cards and you put them together and just have them be that good so yeah yeah totally brutal so this brings me to another cheap little artifact paired with another cheap little creature which just took the world by storm and you'll know cgb that this deck has a special place in my heart in fact if you rewind to the very first ever the very first ever original episode that i did of the show which was not an introduction featured this deck and it was played and brewed by the very capable Aaron Girdler, who remains one of my favorite content creators. Rip for his content creator career. He decided to take a break, maybe never coming back to Magic. It was a sad day, but I was very proud of him. We love you, Aaron. Yep, Aaron just flaming on out there doing whatever cool stuff he's doing. Just a great human being. But in the meantime, this is a deck that I got on early, and I got on it hard. So for those of you who don't remember this deck or maybe weren't playing at the time, well, if, if you were playing at the time, you would remember it. <laughs> just play standard. It's still there. It just doesn't have this card. Go on. So, okay, <laughs> this is how I remember it. So I read Aaron Gertler's post in Reddit Spikes. Great place to go and get competitive deck building advice, by the way. And um, And I read about this deck and I was like, ooh, that sounds really fun. 
So I went ahead, crafted it up, put it together on the ladder. I played a game and I was like, this deck is garbage. This deck is awful. But I was intrigued. I was like, but it's kind of sweet. So then I played another game and I was like, okay, all right. And by game four or five, I was like, oh, oh God, oh God, life will never be the same in standard. And we were proved out. That deck actually went all the way to a Pro Tour final. Now, granted, it did need another busted card to be printed to take it there. But this deck, I honestly, when I think back on the history of Standard, this deck maybe terrorized people for longer than any other of like the big, well, maybe with the exception of the Sack deck, right? This might be like Dude, I, I keep waiting for you to say the name of the deck. It's killing me. <laughs> I, I know what it is, but some listeners don't. You still haven't said what the deck is. <laughs> That's hilarious. Is. All right, crafties, it is Tima Adventure. Some people call it Tima Clover. Named after the namesake card, Lucky Clover. And it was the luckiest of cards, let me tell you. And so this, if you hate Innkeeper and Standard now, do I have a story for you? Because this deck, when it was really going off, I mean, you could have these busted turns where you put like four or five lands into play, drew, you know, five cards, exiled a bunch of cards off the top of your library, dug for another Clover, went to your sideboard four times. I mean, this deck, when it was really going off just went over the top of anything else that was possible in the format. And I just, I don't know, to this day, it's some of the most fun I've ever had playing Magic was playing that deck because it was really in a lot of ways pretty janky. And, you know, all of the creatures that you played were fantastic adventure creatures, but they were just kind of rando creatures on the board that didn't really do very much. But the play patterns were just so fascinating and the way that you accrued advantage over a game was so incredible and the way that you could finally combo off and kill your opponent on the final turn was so amazing and the way that it just freaking tied control in knots made me feel so good. Felt so good. <laughs> I, I just love this love fest with Team Red Oh Adventures. my gosh. It really is just one of my favorite decks of all time. <laughs> it's getting to it's me. It's so good. So we didn't talk about it with Cauldron Familiar. Maybe we should have. But I think that Lucky Clover being banned when it was banned, which is, I believe, do I have this right? Was it like right after? It was banned with Uro, right? Slightly after Omnath came into the format and rotation happened. I, right? I think it was banned at the same time Omnath was, if I remember it correctly. Yeah. Okay, okay. It's And Cauldron Familiar was banned before, before the rotation. rotation. Yeah. So Cauldron Familiar was like this preemptive ban. They took the cat out before it could dominate mm-hmm. standard. But they left in Edgewalling Keeper and Lucky Clover, which just took these adventure cards that were already mm-hmm. good. And gave you even more incentive to play nothing but adventures, just by giving you free value at an insanely low mm-hmm. price. And then I remember our 2021 standard testing was just like, this format's just going to be Lucky Clover yep. format. That's all that's going to matter. In our famous showdown, the top two decks were Teamer Adventure and Simic Adventure. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And Simic Adventure really, like uh, that video still does very well. We broke standard 2021. That Simic Adventure list that we proclaimed the best deck was the best because it had a go over the top strategy of for Teamer mm. Adventure. Like it won that mirror. And Lucky Clover was really just poised to dominate forever. It seemed like for, for an entire year. If they hadn't banned Lucky Clover and Cauldron Familiar, can you imagine what the last year oh would be God. like? 
It's hard to yeah. picture. You can say what you want to about how annoying Bone Crusher Giant has been or some of these other cards that people are fed up with, but man, these cards would have been dominant. And Lucky Clover. We we talked about Fires of Invention and Wilderness Reclamation being enchantments, so some decks just can't get rid of them. And so when they work, you just feel like you didn't play the game. Lucky Clover is a two-mana artifact. Like, so many colors just can't remove that. Not at any kind of a reasonable rate, which means if you have 20 adventure cards in your deck, you not only have 20 creature threats that the opponent has to think about, you have 20 spells whose effects have been doubled. Mm -hmm. And I bet that fourth or fifth game where you're like, oh my god, I bet I know what happened. I bet you had two Lucky Clovers out. (laughs) I think it was some combination of Beanstalk Giant, Lucky Clover, and then anything else, right? That's what happened. Dude, like once you double Clover, or once you Clover and Innkeeper, there's just... It's like, what are we doing? This is insane. The card, it's, it's too free. It's, it's so free. So I remember during that Dex Ascension, one of the most common questions that I got asked as a noted Tima adventure mage was, I'm playing XY deck. How do I combat this deck? How do I sideboard against the deck? And it always felt like a cop out, but my main answer was good luck. Cause how are you supposed to tackle it? There was no good way to do it. There really wasn't. Were you playing cheap cards that could take over the game quickly, like Cauldron Familiar, Mayhem, Devil, and Witch's Oven? No. Were you playing Fires of Invention, and did you have some kind of a strategy to steal every single permanent from your opponent by about turn four or five? No? Oh. Oh, you're trying to you're trying to cast something for five mana and hope it works out. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry, that's not going to work. Nope. No, your opponent has endless value, endless answers. They're doing about 50 things a turn. They're ramping. And when they want to, they can draw five, which is another card we might get yep. to. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this deck was, in retrospect, it was another one of these, like, greatest hits of most punchable-in-the-face magic cards. Some of these lists even got kind of greedy and ran cards like Oro and Nissa as well. Yeah, that's that's the greedy deck. In the form. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that the vanilla build ended up being better in a vast majority of situations. But anyway, um, yeah, this deck was just another deck which, by the end of its reign of terror... It was just one of the most groan-inducing decks. And we all know that feeling of, like, your opponent goes turn two, Clover, turn three, again, anything, basically. And you just had that kind Mm -hmm. of yawning, horrible feeling in your stomach of, like, oh, God, I'm just never going to win this game. Clover should have been banned before the release of Zendikar Rising, Rising, in my opinion, because it was so poised for takeover anyway. And they banned Cat, so they showed that they did have a forward thinking. And what oddly saved Clover for a few more months was the fact that Omnath was even more, like, like more broken. Exactly. That's what bailed out Clover (laughs) and gave it a few more months to live. And then they figured out, oh, we just put Omnath and Clover in the same deck. Bingo. And we don't lose games to anything else. It's perfect. Man, oh my goodness. And you know what's wild, Kovaco Blue, is that throughout all of this, we haven't even spoken about the Great Henge. <laughs> you don't need to. It did nothing. It did nothing when it could be elked. Yeah. It did nothing when games were like just ending and people were getting value for free. Because look... You don't need to untap with a Lovestruck Beast and then pay four mana to play something that gives you two life and an extra card for every creature you control when you're getting extra cards starting on turn one and two from Edgewall Innkeeper mm-hmm. or just a truck of value from Cat Oven Mayhem Devil or Fires of Invention, by the way, on turn five when you're going to use that Great Henge. Fires of Invention is tripling your mana. Yep, that's fun. 
Yeah. It's a good time. That's a world we lived yeah. in where the Great Henge was a set piece. I mean, it's just wild to think that like Great Henge decks for a long time were like tier three and or just not even tier decks, basically. Like somebody put one in a team or adventure list and we're looking at it like, you don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got so much value. Yeah. That's it was a, it silly. Was a flex Why would you spot, even play right? that? Yeah, people ran as a flex slot. What if you don't have a love strike beast and you hit it off your escape to the wild? It's garbage. <laughs> oh my goodness, right? But let's talk about it for a little while because I think that the Great Henge ended up being like a what? It was like a tier four Eldraine banger or something like that. It ended up being it was like fourth wave Eldraine or something. It had a window, mm-hmm. like it had a window where it was hard to remove. Mm-hmm. And that was before Kaldheim released, but after Uro, Omnath, and Clover were banned. Yeah. And then suddenly getting a henge down decided games for like the first time. Yeah, I think that the the Lovestruck Beast into henge plan for a hot minute there was one of the best things you could be doing in Standard, for sure. And then Binding the Old Gods just came along and ruined that fun. I think more than anything, just ultimatum plan. It was like, oh yeah, cute artifacts, cute drawing cards, cute board. I'm just going to win the game. Yeah, ultimatum, a pretty big part in that. Just enough cards to make it a splinter twin effect, a tooth and nail effect for the boomers. Yeah, And, and it's interesting how... These are like all of the busted aspects of Eldraine. Let's just spend a minute focusing on the cards that made it through. You know, the cards that for that, they just coasted through their entire time in standard. I mean, Edgewall Innkeeper has to be just like ground zero, right? When you take a mechanic that's built in and pushed already, and you add very cheap, very low cost incentives to play the mechanic, especially when it comes to card advantage, it's just... It's too much. If they had made a venture into the dungeon creature that, like, for one mana was a 1-1 that said whenever you play a, like, a creature, venture into a dungeon, that would be, that would make the mechanic good. Yep. Edgewall Innkeep was, like, ten times better than that. You want cards? Take some cards. Enjoy. Okay, imagine CGB if it was, like, 2005, you were playing Magic, and, and, like, future CGB just walked into the room and, like, grabbed you by the shoulders and was like, okay, younger CGB, check it out. In future standard, they're going to make these adventure creatures. The adventure creatures are going to have a spell on one side, and they're going to be a creature on the back side. So they're going to be a two for one. But wait, there's more. Every time you play the creature, you're actually going to get to draw a card as well. Would you have thought that future CGB had just, like, drunk a little bit too much, like, space gin, or what? (laughs) I think I would have asked what color it was, and when future CGB said green, there would be no more credibility. I'm like, you're an imposter. Get out. You would have laughed. You're like, oh, it's not blue. Lol. Whatever. (laughs) Green? (laughs) If you go to 2005, like, green doesn't draw cards. Yeah, it doesn't have this endless value. It doesn't have broken planeswalkers. It's like Tarmogoyf's the only good card or something. It just yeah. doesn't do these things. <laughs> it plays big dumb animals. That that's what green that's what green deck do. Tarzan. I don't know. I'm like gonna cough thinking about it, but there was a time where green wasn't the universal broken color. And when you think about all the green cards we've talked about already, it mm-hmm. it's obvious at this point that green got a push, and I probably what future CGB should have told. 2005 CGB was stick with green, man. Because back then, this is a true story. Back then, I was uh, winning regionals. I was regional champion with a mono green deck back then. Yeah. And if if future CGB had said stick with green, be covert, go green, 
you know, or come up with a better name, but make it related to green. My branding, who knows? I, I'd probably be much more famous and way, way more ahead of the game here. I'd, I'd be given, be given the biggest of YouTubers a run for their money. <laughs> I mean, it, it is just ridiculous to think about like, how could we take a card like Bone Crusher Giant and make it even better, right? How could we take a card like Lovestruck Beast and make it even better? And I think that that's what, that's what Edgewall Innkeeper really did. And so I think what I learned from Edgewall Innkeeper was that like, it's like a two head move to incentivize you to play cards that are already good, right? Oh, that's, it's I just, love that. Yeah. You know, it's like, imagine if like, Imagine if Force of Will had draw a card on it, you know? It would just be so obnoxious. This is like the standard equivalent of that. Don't give them ideas. <laughs> oh, God, I know, dude. Look what you've done. <laughs> Go sit in the corner, Arjuna. Think about it. But, I mean, that's really it for me. Like, adventure creatures didn't need to be better, you know? And and I think that it was just a huge mistake to print not one but two build-arounds that, that gave you an even bigger incentive to play them. Strong agree. Okay, let's see. Do we need to go into the adventure creatures? I mean, only to the fact that they made so many cards unplayable, and those cards might be playable now. So we spent almost a year as like people trying to evaluate magic cards, saying, looking at a card and saying, if the opponent has Bone Crusher Giant, did this card matter? And if the opponent has Brazen Borrower, did this card matter? And if the answer is no to either one of those, the card was basically unplayable because mm -hmm. those cards are in enough decks and in enough spots that you just can't run a card like Immerstorm Predator. Haha, <laughs> Brazen Borrower. Hey, mm -hmm. nice, nice move, Cute. noob. You, you lose tempo. You lose four mana. It was mm -hmm. too much. So in that respect, I think that's what we can say about them. But I also want to say that every format has those cards. Their Flame Tongue Kavus being one of the first ones that people got people thinking this way. Hostage Taker. And Ravenous Chupacabra also kind of did this thing. Ooh, Chupacabra Good was nasty. Removal yeah. spells without downside and possibly with upside, like mm -hmm. a body that you get, like Brazen Borrower and Bone Crusher Giant provide, they will shape a format. And you have to be on the lookout for the next one as the spoiler season comes out of what removal card that has very low downside and possibly upside is going to shape yeah. the format. It's kind of interesting that Murderous Rider ended up being one of the weaker ones, given that it looked so powerful. In, in Standard 2022, I'm actually starting to go through a phase where I start thinking, if my opponent plays a Shambling Ghast and sacrifices it to a Deadly Dispute, did my creature die and do nothing? And I'm starting to hate X1s in kind of a similar way. But I think yeah. it's, we've got a ways to go before it's ubiquitous. You know, mm -hmm. I agree. But I think you're right. It does, it does just give us a taste of what's around the corner. And I think that it's kind of interesting because I think the, the nearest analog that I can think of in recent design to these adventure creatures is actually the cycle of free creatures in uh, Modern Horizons 2. But, and I'm trying to remember what they're called. They're, they're named Grief. after what? Incarnations. Virtues. Yeah, the Incarnations. The Incarnations, right? yep. Yep. So this is this other like cycle of creatures that has just single-handedly come along and shaped what's possible in the format. I think that we do need to be looking out in these upcoming standard sets for for these other cycles of creatures that have these mechanics that are going to do that. I'm not surprised we've had a lot to talk about in this cast, but there's no. actually so many things I want to hit. So let's just break it down to what did we learn from, and I'll throw you a card, and we can just kind of go down the list. Okay. Sounds good. What did you learn from Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath? 
You know, honestly, the thing I learned from Oro was that like someone on the design team should have been fired or relocated like a year ago. You know what I mean? And I mean, that's a mean thing to say, and I don't really mean it. And I'm sorry, whoever designed Oro. But I just think that like that card was so beyond the pale. You know, like we can forgive them for Oko. We can forgive them for a lot of things. But I think Oro was just egregious. It was just an egregious magic card. I can't stress enough that cards like Oko and Embercleave and Fires of Invention, people had to figure it out. And with Uro, everybody looked at this and was like, well, that's broken. <laughs> yeah. It's the only thing that's going to matter. And it did. And it had to be banned in multiple formats. So yep. sometimes what looks that good is just too good. And Omnath would still be legal. It wouldn't be rotating, so it doesn't have to be part of that show. But that was the only other time I've just looked at a card and been like, nope. I was going to say, there are two cards that have made me just like lurch forward in my chair when I was reading the spoilers. The first one was Smuggler's Copter, mm -hmm. which was banned within a month of release. And yep. the next one was Uro, which should have been banned within a month of release. And, and just instead, took a year entirely man. too long. Okay, Escape to the Wilds. You know, call me crazy. I didn't think this one needed to be banned. I, I'm still with you. I, yeah. I was going to ask you, instead of necessarily what did we learn, did this have to be banned? And it feels like it was just to make sure that Adventures wasn't the only thing and Adventures still is a really good thing. I'm still not sure this one had to go. Here's my question, is what deck does Escape to the Wild see play and if it's in standard right now? Adventures, but it would replace Goldspan Dragon. Yeah. It's just like, I don't see a great shell for it. Yeah, and then your deck doesn't close. An ultimatum means that you need to close. Mm -hmm. And, like, the adventure deck has been more reactive, and, and Goldspan Dragon lets it do that, play with some counter spells to combat mm -hmm. ultimatum. So I don't think Escape to the Wilds would be in a competitive deck right now. And maybe I'm wrong. Obviously, you have to mm -hmm. go back and re-engineer the format, but... I, I'm still surprised that this one's banned. I was surprised at the time, and I'm still surprised today. I think it was, yeah, it was murdered for Clover's sins. That's, I think, what happened. Yeah, I, I think what, the lesson we learned from Escape to the Wilds is sometimes you have to be sure. <laughs> yeah. And hey, man, you know, if that was the double tap that the archetype needed, then there you go. Better safe than sorry. Unbanned card, but a card that in, got a huge nerf. Mm. Luris of the Dream Den is rotating. Yeah, Lars. Oh my goodness. I'll go first if you like. <laughs> Take us there, man. What I learned from Luris is that probably most of my decks should just play cheaper cards. Because mm. when you play good cheap cards, you're going to have a good win rate anyway. And I remember when Luris first came out, I was like, it pained me to do things like cut Mayhem Devil from Rakdos Sacrifice, for example. And uh, a million examples of all the different Luris decks that were brewed. And you know what? Again and again and again, it just meant we were playing cheaper cards. And Luris was like this free value engine that you got for playing cheap cards. And you just won a lot of games by playing good, cheap cards. And then the games that you needed, Luris, there she was. It was like a little taste of modern in standard, you know? That's kind of how I felt about it. You look a lot of these Luris decks, and they, they just look like decks from older formats. And they are. I mean, I think that that's, that's the takeaway for me, is that like a Luris deck is a modern deck or a legacy deck. It's just playing weaker cards. 
right? But I think that like a lot of the fundamental game plans, like Rogues is a really good example. I think Rogues has a lot more in common with a deck like Delver than you might think, right? Mm -hmm. I'm with you, man. Cheap cards are great. And uh, they certainly don't seem to be getting any worse. All right, next one. And this one is arguably a card that should have been banned, was banned in or suspended in a format, and is arguably the cornerstone of the best deck right now. Winota, Joiner of Forces, is rotating. When they banned it in Historic, I don't know if you remember, but I went on an angry tirade about how it should have just been removed from Standard too, and I stand yeah. by that. I think Winota is one of those cards which is either unplayable or busted. There's really no middle ground. The other thing is it's one of those cards where if one player is having fun, the other player isn't. I just I just don't see a place in Magic for cards like Winota. Like, sure, you know, occasionally they make you cackle with glee. I've played some Winota decks, whatever. But I think that the net fun value coming from Winota is like at an all-time low. It's one of those things that's very fun if it's printed in a casual, like a casually appealing way. Like, if they had made this like six or seven mana... I would have still probably tried to play a deck with it somewhere because the popping off is fun, but I wouldn't play it every day because it was easy to counter, get under, and just not reliable. And it's it's when it's aggressively costed to the point that you face it every day, that's when there's no more fun. And Arena has, again, just ex they, it's made it so that so many more games of Magic get played than ever before. And it makes cards that would have been fun in a dose miserable as a daily experience. I think Winota would have been a lot of fun, like, in back-in-the-day magic where people weren't net-decking all the time, where, like, mm -hmm. you went to your local F&M and someone just had, like, a super funky Winota brew that went off every now and then. Like, mm -hmm. it would have been a really fun card for that kind of an environment. But I think in this day and age, it's it's just not fun. I think everything about Winota that could have been fun has is, is kind of been stripped away, in my opinion. I would also say that the deck-building puzzle isn't very fun. Agreed. It's too broad. Human, non-human. Like, somebody does the math and figures out this many humans, and then you play non-humans. I also think that the ability of Winota to hit itself is just kind of stupid. So obnoxious. Because it, it ensures that you already have a certain quota of humans in your deck, and that mm -hmm. Winota kind of has sneaky haste so often. I, I feel like it should have maybe been non-legendary. It just needed more restrictions or mm -hmm. a higher cost. Yeah, in retrospect, I think an easy way to fix the card a little bit would just be to say when one or more creatures attack, and you just get one trigger. Oh, you know? sure, sure. Yeah. It's simple, simple. All right. All right, you got any more? I have two more. Okay. Okay, I know which one I'll save for last. Ugin the Spirit Dragon. I bring this one up because I have rarely disagreed as much with other human beings as I do when people... Every day that I have made content with Ugin, have asked for Ugin to get banned, have called for Ugin <laughs> needing to be banned. I don't know, like, people hate this card, and I cannot believe how many times I have heard they need to ban Ugin, and I just feel like we gotta talk about it. It's rotating. I don't think it was ever close to being banned. Was it ever tier one? Uh, not in my memory. You know what's funny to me? I had a moment of asking myself whether it was in, uh, what was it, M20? Mm -hmm. Because I haven't, like, I can't tell you the last time I saw Ugin on the battlefield. I've played so much standard. You know, probably the last time I saw it on the battlefield is when I was playing it as like a janky one-off in my own Saltai Ultimatum deck right at the beginning of that format. Sure. But other than that, I mean, standard, regular standard has basically been a ghost town for Ugin. 
Yeah, yeah. Can you name the best Ugin deck in standard right now? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I believe I can. Okay. I, I believe it's like a mono red deck with Iron Craig feet. Oh, I think, right. And it showed up in one of the like championships. Maybe it was the Kaldheim championship. But yeah, the idea was to cast Iron Craig feet on turn five and mm-hmm. ramp out Ugin and a few yeah. people played it. Maybe like a crackle with power back end or something like that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe no. that's a different deck, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you could. You could. You're such a memer. You're like, Rash Taunter, Crackle with Power, let's go. <laughs> Iron Craig Feet, yes. But I mean, that's how far off Ugin has been to being competitive in this format. And I just, I don't know, man. I've got to dagger the people who want it banned. I just have to because it's so, I think it was an awesome, I, I think that M21 is one of the best core sets overshadowed by so much broken stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it was yeah. a sweet corset that would have legitimately shaken up most metas that it could have been introduced to, but not this one. Just not this one. And it's going to take a lot of sweet cards with it, Ugin being one of them. I remember Kovako Blue that for a while, with the with the previous uh, standard 2021 queue, fetching Ugin from your sideboard was like shorthand for doesn't understand the format. It was kind of an inside joke between the two of us, right? Because of how rarely either of us ever fetched that card from the board. And uh, that should give you some idea. I mean, it's a sweet card. I think it was a great printing. I think that it did exactly what it should have done in the format. And uh, you know what? A plus for Ugin. Just a good run in standard. Very well balanced. Kind of sad to see it go. I think it would be interesting in 2022. And then maybe we could have a conversation about its power level. But even then, the creature lands would eat it for breakfast. Yeah. So, I don't know. I wanted to mention it. And then the last one that I have. You ready? Yorion. Sky Nomad. I, I, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. So I'll let you have the final word on Yorian, so I'll just say briefly what I think about it, because we all know whose who's baby it is. In the end, I think Yorian ended up being by far the coolest companion, and just from a game balance and design perspective, one of the sweetest cards ever printed. I can see why you love it so much, because the deck building possibilities are just endless, and honestly, the only time when Yorian has been any kind of a problem was just when it was in shells with other cards that were the actual problem. But Yorian has really never been the problem. It has inspired, like, probably more deck lists than any other card I can think of. And uh, I've had a lot of fun with Yorian, playing with it, playing against it. I think in the end, the dials were tweaked just right on that card, especially with the companion nerf, which I think it's very well balanced with that. Um, I still think it would have been kind of ridiculous if they hadn't nerfed that. So in closing... Yorian is just a, a sweet, sweet, good old sky boy, and I'm going to be sad to see it go. Aw, but it's a scam, right? <laughs> it is totally a scam. A scam that results in sweet <laughs> which is, I'll take that scam. Which is why I have good yes. things to say okay. about it. Yorian, oh man, I feel like I'm giving an, an eulogy, but I, I kind of am. So... I think people discovered how much we love the blink mechanic. The first time I remember it, like, being on a creature and just really lighting people up, uh, Restoration Angel, uh, which was a defining feature of a format that featured cards to blink like Blades Splicer and Thrag Tusk. Restoration Angel could only target other non-angel creatures. It required you to have a very specific creature type, but it also gave you a body at an okay rate, and it had flash, so it let you be responsive. Very cool card. What Yorian did that really took the blinking archetype and mechanic to the next level, it said not just any permanent, any and all 
permanence that you want to blink this turn, you get to do it. You get to do it. Uh, enchantments, artifacts, planeswalkers. And so now your head is spinning from all kinds of ways. You could get value from it by blinking your fires of invention, then using your mana to do something else, for example, just because it wasn't on the battlefield for a period of time. Really cool exploit, so mm-hmm. to speak. Or you could spam all those Theros enchantments that at the time when they were revealed, we were kind of like, it's an enchanted theme block, and they put spells on enchantments. Who cares? Turns out Yorian cares a lot. And suddenly, Omen of the Sea isn't just a playable card. It brings with it cards like Omen of the Sun and Omen of the Forge that people didn't give the time of day to. And that mm-hmm. that's sweet. On top of that, the requirement was a sweet one. But go on. Sorry, I just wanted to butt in there just a sec. Two of my favorite things to do with Yorian, A of all just to hide some permanent that you wanted to protect from like your opponent's ECD or something. And you could do this with, you know, fun little like, uh, you could do this on your opponent's turn, for example, with the prince. Mm -hmm. So you could get into these cool little loops. Another sweet thing was just to like exile away all of your creatures and then wrath of all. That's a good B of all. That's one of the better B of alls of the day. Yep. (laughs) It's just, yeah, you could just do some really like, I think a lot of people think about like offensive Yorianing, but you could do a lot of defensive Yorianing as well so anyway back to you i love the requirement i hated it at first i am one of those people that for 20 years arjuna 20 years i would never put the 61st card in my deck strictly doing it wrong hard line hard line never yeah won't do it Mm -hmm. you're strictly doing it wrong if you don't have the backbone and the intelligence to make the final cut that's on you and i won't be that guy i will never back down And here comes a card that says you've got to play 20 more cards. And honestly, this was a crucial bridge for me to getting into Commander. It really was. Because I realized Mm -hmm. by being given an incentive to play an 80-card deck that they could function. That you could get your land right so it could be consistent. That you could fill it with cards that did work. That your mulligans weren't all disasters. I think there was a part of me that just always, if I lost to some inconsistency, I would blame the 61st card if it was there. Being forced to play 80 to get access to a really cool upside. Yes, there are inconsistencies to an 80 card deck, but it's not unplayable. It can still function. And you can, you know, you can tweak and build it. And you play more cards than you would before because you just get experiences with more cards in the format it's like the format's just a little bit bigger for you and later cards like emergent ultimatum actually made this a benefit because you didn't draw all your clunky situational seven drops you left them lurking somewhere deep in the 80 in most games and access them and that was freaking sweet it was so cool in best of one to be playing an 80 card deck with a 15 card wish board you know that you could go get with like some of the like fey of wishes or uh, raven's warning and things like that and yorian like you just have access to so many more game experiences and Yorian opened those doors, and now I play Commander, and I actually work on tuning Commander decks, and I see kind of a beauty in making a 100-card pile work. And I don't shy away from Historic Brawl. I'm excited that's 100 cards, you know? I, I just don't think that would have happened without Yorian. So, yeah, here at Yorian's Rotation Eulogy from CGB, for those who stayed till the end and got to experience it, I do have to say that the card expanded the way I see the format. Anybody who ever said it would be banned, your haters, it served a role, an important one, and I'm going to miss it. I always will. I think people have wondered if I can even cope, if my channel can go on. And at this point, I'm Rose, and Jack is cold. He's not speaking anymore, and it's time to let him go. Time to let him go to the bottom of the ocean with the rest of the Titanic. But I'll, I'll never forget you, Yorian, and my heart, my heart will go on. And Yorian will live on in historic brawl. 
So <laughs> if you ever, if you ever want to take the noodle out for a ride, you can resurrect Falcor and, and go to it. And I think that that's probably a good place for us to wrap up here. Thanks for sticking with us. Crafties has been a long one, but hopefully a goodie. You know, there's just so much more that we could say about one of the most busted standards of all time. But I think we'll we'll basically leave it here. I'm sure we'll we'll keep throwing daggers into the past as time goes on. For now, CGB, I'm just really stoked about looking forward to the next format. And just once more, saying it so that God can hear it. Just please make Midnight Hunt not the next Eldraine. Please, 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 please. please. You have one job. <laughs> just don't Eldraine you just again. Have one job. All right. <laughs> That's your one job. Don't Eldraine ever again. <laughs> ever again so as long as that happens happy arjuna because you know standard 2022 has been one of the most balanced and sweetest formats that i've played in a long time so may it continue to be so amen all right crafties i will curtail the usual outro but thank you so much for joining us you can watch this on cgb's youtube you can listen to it on spotify among other places and cgb i look forward to catching you next week for what will probably be another spoiler absolutely looking forward to it later crafties